I'd never been fired before. And it was, aside from the fact that it was, you know, something I'd started, it was devastating. It was a real blow because I thought, why would anyone want to fire me? I'm smart. I work hard. You know, I, I put the place together. I, I just couldn't understand it. Welcome to Everyday Leadership, podcast where I interview leaders not defined by position or title. Everyday people who lead their lives in extraordinary ways. And on this podcast, they share their stories, their life lessons and practical tools in the hope that it will inspire everyday people like you and me to realize we are everyday leaders. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Mr. Art Bell, who is the founder of Comedy Central, which actually was Comedy Channel back in those days, actually. He's also uh, wants to went out to do be the president of Court TV. He is the author of The Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central, and Lost My Sense of Humor. How are you doing, sir? I'm good, Shobi. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's an absolute um, pleasure. Obviously, I, I grew up loving comedy and watching a lot of stuff around on Comedy Central, especially my, my, my childhood, especially at South Park. As soon as I saw this come up, I was like, yeah, this is a great opportunity. I need to find out how Comedy Central actually came about. And reading some of the experts from your book, I was, I'm not sure what the right word is. I was laughing, but at the same time, a state of shock. I see how <laughs> things were kind of unfolding behind the scenes. I was like, let's, let's just find out how, how things were, were for you. Well, you know, I, that's the reason I wrote the book. Um, I wanted to convey the fact that Comedy Central, which everybody has watched now for 30 years, this is the 30th anniversary of Comedy Central's launch. That was April 1st, 1991. Um, that it wasn't shot out of a cannon, fully formed and completely successful the day it started. I mean, it was really, really hard work to get this thing up and running, and it almost didn't make it. In fact, before you even delve into that, I'm still curious as to how was it possible that when you pitched this to HBO at that point in time, you were a marketing and finance analyst. Right. How like how did they actually get them to say yes? Because I'm just like, wait a minute, marketing finance analyst, here's a 24-hour comedy channel, which has never been created. It's very innovative, but why did they say yes? Well, I, you know what? They originally didn't say yes. They originally said it's a terrible idea and that there was, they had no intention of doing it. Uh, they didn't think anybody would want to watch a 24-hour comedy network. And you got to remember, HBO was doing their own comedy in those days. They were, they were known for comedy, which to me was a good reason to do a 24-hour comedy channel. Uh, because HBO was comedy on television and, you know, they could, they could cement their, uh, their market with a, with a channel. But they declined. So I thought I was going to have to leave HBO because I was, I, I'd been working on another project. The project was over. I was kind of out of a job, although they said stick around. So I started working on writing it up and, you know, getting the financials in order and getting the programming plan in order and doing all these things I had been thinking about for years uh, with regard to a comedy network. But as luck, as luck would have it, my boss happened by and said, what are you doing? And he took a look at it. That's what happened. Where did that love for comedy come from? Well, 
I'm not sure where it came from other than it started very early. I was, I was about seven or eight years old when I noticed how important it seemed to be in my household uh, to be funny. I had two younger brothers. They were funny. Uh, my father was pretty funny. And my mother was not very funny. And, um, <laughs> but she, uh, she, she laughed a lot. And I started watching comedy on television around that time. And I, I saw, you know, some of the great comedians on the Ed Sullivan show and the power to make people laugh. I immediately recognized as something that was really unique and something I wanted to know more about and maybe even become someone who could make people laugh. Yeah. I think for me, comedy has always been a form of escapism where regardless of what's going on, you can, you can just put something on and just escape and just get lost in the sometimes politically incorrect jokes, but it was still very vibrant and just people think sometimes a lot of what people were thinking, but were afraid to say. Well, I think that's true. I think it goes beyond, <clears throat> beyond that. I think comedy is, is human. I mean, it's, it's, it's built into all of us. It's a way we communicate. It's a way we ease tension when we're talking to people. We smile, we laugh, we try and interact in that way. And again, you know, I don't, I don't have to tell you, but uh, certainly men are always trying to make women laugh in the hope that they'll like them better. <laughs> At least that's been my experience, not only personally, but talking to my, talking to my friends. I mean, it's, uh, it's an important thing to be able to laugh and to make other people laugh. Definitely. I suppose when it was the last year in the pandemic where it's been obviously hard and difficult for so many different reasons, Comedy has been one of those constants that's been able to keep people going and give them something to smile about during some, some dark days. So I definitely agree with that. And just kind of rolling into back into your story around how this, this came about. I mean, when you, like you said, when you launched, things didn't go, things didn't go smoothly. I think I read a bit where you talked about your, your mum's friends <laughs> said you weren't, the channel wasn't funny, as well as the critics, but it was your mum's friends that really got to me. I was like, ooh, that's a bit different. Yeah, it was a bit harsh is what it was. Um, yeah, the, the, the launch was difficult because, you know, when you launch a comedy channel, everybody expects it to be funny. Drama, people don't expect it to. You know, this should have been more dramatic. But when, when you're doing comedy, they say, hey, this should be more, this should be funnier. It's not funny. And uh, that's a high bar. That's why comedy is so difficult generally. But when we first launched, you know, again, we, we weren't in a position to copy the other comedy channel was out there because there weren't any. We didn't know exactly how to make a comedy channel, and we had to figure it out a little bit. So the day we launched, let me tell you, it didn't go very well. Um, we didn't have enough programming at that point because we put it together very quickly. We uh, were being given an intense scrutiny by the critics. Because it was HBO that was launching it. And HBO, as you know, was uh, the most successful television channel of its day at that time. As a matter of fact, the chairman of HBO, Michael Fuchs, had just been declared the most powerful man in Hollywood by the New York Times. So 
Michael was riding high, and when he announced that he was going to do a comedy network, believe me, it got a lot of attention. And I think there was a little bit of uh, payback time, too, when the press came and said, hey, you know, Michael Fuchs launches a channel, HBO launches a channel, says it's going to be the funniest channel ever. And guess what? It's not. It's not funny. It's, you know, stupid. It, it's never going to survive. I mean, the things they said about us, it was quite pathetic. How did you deal with that criticism? Because it was, it was constant. For a very sustained period of time, this was like between six months to twelve months, when you guys really just kicked off. So when you're doing something that's brand new to to the world, and yet you're getting that constant criticism as well as the pressure as you just described, it's going to be kind of hard to have that room to to think, to plan, to execute, to iterate. You must have felt so much immense pressure. I'm just curious, how did you actually cope with that, and how did that affect you, even personally, let alone professionally? <laughs> Wow, that's a lot of questions. Um, <laughs> you know, this is what I wrote in, in my book. You know, the book is a memoir. It tells a story from my point of view. And it tells about my uh, unease during this whole period. I mean, I guess that's that's an easy way to put it. Um, there was a lot of pressure. It wasn't only from the outside, but it was from people I was working with. I mean, I had come up with this idea. I had talked HBO into doing it, they threw a tremendous amount of resources at it. So when it launched and it wasn't working, I felt personally responsible, not only for making the channel work, but at that point we had, you know, a few hundred people who were employed by the channel. And if it failed, if it didn't work, then I would have felt terrible. I mean, I was young enough so that probably wouldn't have killed my career completely. <laughs> and I didn't have much of a reputation at that point. But certainly Michael Fuchs, as I said, he had a huge reputation at stake. And he was not happy. So that was another source of pressure. Um, and it was, it took a lot for me to keep myself going and keep myself focused on how am I going to make this work? How am I going to make it better? What am I going to do more of today on the channel? And what are we going to do less of that's not working? Um, and, and that was the constant battle. But let me tell you, I went to work every day for pretty much the first year thinking, okay, today's the day they're going to shut it down. And that was, that was what, what I dealt with. And they did it. It kept on building and growing. And I was, um, it was very interesting that there was no 24-hour channel for years. And then along comes two. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that was the craziest thing. That was totally crazy. <laughs> well, let me tell you how that happened. Yes, for, for years, not for years, forever, there was no 24-hour comedy network. And when I came out of school... I looked around and I said, there's an all-news channel, there's an all-sports channel, why no comedy network? Because that's what I'd like to work at. Uh, and I was sure somebody was going to start one any day. It was just, you know. And then when I realized it wasn't coming, nobody was talking about it, that's when I started putting together my own plans and pitching the channel. As I said, Michael Fuchs was very proud of this channel, and he did a press conference in Los Angeles for the, in for the industry, for the press. He had comedians there. Billy Crystal was there. I remember sitting next to him. And Michael was bragging about the channel. The next day, MTV Networks announced they were going to launch another comedy channel. And they were going to call their channel, Ha! The Comedy Network. 
Now, I, I was... I had enough trouble trying to figure out how to get this channel launched without having competition, so I wasn't really excited. However, it occurred to me that, you know, as you said, a year ago there were no comedy channels. Suddenly there's going to be two. That's crazy. But it did validate the idea. It did convince me that, okay, look, one way or another, it's not, it wasn't the stupidest idea to have a comedy network in the world. And that, that made me feel good. And let me tell you, there's nothing like a little competition to get the, you know, get the, the motivation going. For, for me and for people I was working with. And when they launched six months later, it was like this. Mm. We were fighting in the trenches. <laughs> and the press was having a field day watching the two channels go head-to-head. -head. So that's the thing about competition. It drives there's a sense of innovation and growth. But when you already feel like you're, you're on the back foot and then along comes someone else with this shiny new channel like, no, we're going to make this work. Ooh, we're here first. We've been getting this abuse for the last six months. We're not going to back down. We're going to push through this. Yeah, well, that's right. Um, it, was, it was not my first lesson in competition. It was my second. The lesson is never underestimate the competition. You know, you may think you have a clear field or you may think nobody is interested in getting into this particular uh, arena, but you're wrong because the mere fact that you're doing something shines a spotlight on the potential marketplace for that. And that's exactly what happened. The other time it happened, I was working on another channel called Festival and Festival was supposed to be for people who didn't like sex violence and bad language on television. HBO was famous for having a lot of sex violence and bad language. That's how they made their, you know, success. Uh, uncut movies and uncut comedy. But, you know, some people were either religious or they had children in the home and they didn't like that. So we came out with a new channel that we were testing called Festival. Uh, and we had movies that were what we called airplane movies, you know, they, uh, airplane versions. They cut out the sex, violence, and bad language from whatever movie that was. It didn't go very well, let me say. But one thing that happened along the way was, was the Disney Channel, which had already launched, and was really aimed at children. They were aimed at children, so they had a, a big, strong daytime schedule, but they didn't have much at night. Um, started putting on movies at night, <laughs> uncut movies at night, and they changed from We Are a Kids Channel. I don't remember what the motto was exactly, but... The channel for the whole movie, for the whole family. We are a channel for the whole family. So suddenly, festival, we thought we had the place to ourselves, and there's competition. So that was the other time that, uh, that I was taught never underestimate the competition. They will find you. It sounds like wherever you go, uh, you're constantly inspiring other people to copy what you do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm truly inspirational. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. I don't think that's been said before, but thank you. <laughs> I'm very curious when it comes to um, comedy, it's it's very hard to get something that translates across different countries. I mean, we're, I'm based in the UK and the comedy that we have in the UK doesn't always translate to what's in the States to other parts of the world. How did you navigate that when you were obviously on setting up Comedy Central? To tell you the truth, um, we did not give the international market a whole lot of thought in the early days. We just didn't. We had enough trouble trying to make sure that we were going to get distributed in the U.S. And distribution was a problem. We were up on the satellite. But when we launched, we were only available in maybe a million homes. And there were 85 million homes out there. 
And the reason is because we had to be carried by cable operators, and there were probably 5,000 cable operators across the country, some very small, some big, some aggregated into multiple system uh, operations. But the fact of the matter is you had to sort of go door to door with your channel, with your new channel, and say, please carry my channel so you, the subscribers in your area can see it. Uh, and that obviously limited our opportunity. So the international market didn't really come into focus for me until I would say four or five years after we launched the channel. And then we started looking at the international market, not so much, well, I won't say that. We started looking at the international market for both channel opportunities and uh, licensing some of our original programming because that was something we considered a possibility as well. And we did. We went to um, international programming conferences and conventions and marketed our, our shows, and some of them were picked up by channels that weren't necessarily all comedy networks. I mean, you know, they were, you know... Uh, channels that just were looking for additional programming that they could license and uh and that's how we got started we did start looking at joint venture deals in canada which i know is not much of a stretch from the u.s uh, in terms of comedic sensibility uh and uh australia and i guess great britain at the time although i don't remember exactly who that was with anyway so we did start to start to do that, but you know, I left I left comedy in the mid '90s. So that probably that that international effort probably went on from what I started uh, and took off from there as the channel developed more original programming and became better known in the United States. Who were your favorite comedians? Richard Pryor was really a favorite of mine, and you know, you mentioned international comedy not traveling. Monty Python? I mean, I first yeah. heard them when I was in seventh grade. It was one of their albums. And my cousin, who was Canadian, I was up in Toronto, as a matter of fact, uh, was playing them. And I hadn't heard of them. They were, I, don't, I guess either they hadn't hit the stage or they certainly hadn't hit my radar yet. And I listened to the album, and I couldn't decide whether it was the funniest thing I ever heard or just plain ridiculous, you know. <laughs> but, of course, I decided it was the funniest thing I've ever heard. I'd ever heard and, uh, you know, fell for it. Listen, there's another, um, there, you know, there's other foreign comedy. The Goon Show, which preceded, that's a British show, I believe. There was a British radio show Never called The Goon Show. You're familiar with it? No. Yeah, late 50s, early 60s. Um, Monty Python credits them with uh, a lot of their inspiration. Uh, so that was, I thought that was the funniest thing. Now, look, I'm not your average comedy consumer, and I certainly wasn't in those days because I liked all kinds of comedy from all kinds of places, English-speaking, I will say. Um, <laughs> I'm not much of a linguist. But you're right. Comedy, getting comedy to travel abroad is, is challenging for a number of reasons. But certainly the world speaks English to a great extent. Um, and, uh, and it does translate. You know, I mean, South Park is an international hit now. And, uh, you know, we have, we, I mean, I'm not at Comedy Central anymore, but Comedy Central has had international hits. Yeah. I mean, like you mentioned previously as well, Richard Pryor is one of my all-time greats. I mean, I, yeah, I loved, a, I love what's What a genius. What a comedy genius. I first saw him 
on the Ed Sullivan show when I was a kid. You know, I don't remember how old I was, but he was he was about 20, I guess. And uh, it was his first appearance on the Ed Sullivan show. And he talked about being a kid in Peoria, Peoria, Illinois, getting beat up on the playground. And it was so relatable <laughs> to me because I got beat up on the playground in New Jersey. Um, but it was also, you know, it was also really a personal story of, you know, an African-American kid getting beat up, you know. And I thought, wow, we, he's coding it in comedy but really telling an important story mm -hmm. and giving an important slice of his life uh, so that people maybe would be more sympathetic or empathetic. Yeah, that's, I think that's, you kind of summed up why I really loved it. It was the, the realness of the story was so relatable, but it was done in such a elegant way that you just had to connect with it. And even though you were, it was painful, you were laughing through, through that pain. And he kind of gave you this, this light in the midst of this darkness, which was, he did in a very, very remarkable, unique way. Yeah, he was amazing. Um, and he actually, he was a writer. He was a movie star. He pretty much did it all. Mm. And uh, one, of the, one of the greats. Definitely. And in terms of um, when you finally left um, Comedy Central and you were, you were fired, I'm, you weren't fired because of, you were fired because of the change in management, which is a very, very, when I started thinking about this, this interview, I was thinking about currently relating to right now, the number of people who have been either fired due to the pandemic, who lost their jobs for, for all sorts of different reasons, which has brought up a number of different emotions for people. And I was just curious, wanted to hear you share about how you felt when you got fired from your baby from something that you actually created, not because you were bad at your, bad at your job or bad at your role, just due to change in management. That's exactly right. My boss, who was the uh, president of Comedy Central, was fired, and they brought in someone who was more entertainment-oriented. And that person fired most of us and brought in his team. I'd never been fired before, and it was... Aside from the fact that it was, you know, something I'd started, it was devastating. It was a real blow because I thought, why would anyone want to fire me? I'm smart. I work hard. You know, I, I put the place together. I, I just couldn't understand it. And uh, I spent a lot of time in the book talking. Not, well, not a lot. I mean, the last couple chapters. But I do talk about my feelings in the last couple chapters. I describe the whole thing in detail. Uh, and I, I haven't, I hadn't seen a lot. People don't like to talk about when they were fired. They say, yeah, I was fired. It was bad, you know, but I hadn't seen a real good description of being fired. And so when I started writing about it, I thought, okay, I am going to write this thing down minute by minute. And I, I, don't get me wrong. I made it interesting. I hope, I mean, it, it, it plays out like a dramatic scene and, um, but it was really, you really see sort of all the emotions that were welling up inside me and all the way people, you know, the, the, the way people in the company dealt with me walking around knowing I had just been fired. I mean, that was an incredible moment for them, I presume, uh, of some sort anyway. Uh, and I, I, I just, 
I wondered, like, you know, what do you have to do to keep a job in this town, you know? <laughs> How about you invent the place and make it successful for eight years, you know? Give everything you've got to making sure this thing prevails uh, and thrives and makes money. And then that's it. Adios. Thanks for everything. You know, right if you get work. I, 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 it was just beyond my belief. But looking back on it, <laughs> that's show business, you know. I mean, the people who read my book say all the time, they say, you know what? One of the things that was really interesting about your book that I didn't know was people get fired so much in, show, in, in the entertainment business and television. And my response is, yes, people get fired a lot in television because... Because it's unclear what, what makes a successful programmer or a successful television executive sometimes. Sometimes it's, it seems like magic, you know, and sometimes programmers have streaks of great programming that they put on and then it ends and they say, okay, well, that guy's done or that gal's done. Time for somebody else. Boom, you're fired. Bring in the next guy. And that's what happens. That is what happens. I think I 100% agree with the way you described you, you getting fired. That's why, as I was reading, I was like, I'm reading this like I'm in 2021, and there's so many people I know who have gone through these kind of expressions and feelings. I'm like, I need to just have you describe it because so many people can relate to it. Because, like you said, the feeling sucks. It's not a great feeling to have, especially when you've you've put in so much and you've been you've been brilliant at what you do. And yet that, that happens, you just feel anger, frustration, and so much. But then you kind of just, you turn it around. And it seemed to be, I'm not sure was how I was reading it, but you seem to turn it around pretty quickly internally. And you kind of dealt with it pretty quickly. Well, let me just say this. I dealt with it. Um, it was two years before I ended up in my next job. I was consulting in between because I had friends in the business at that point. And as soon as I got fired, a friend of mine called a friend of his at A&E, another network, and said, hey, Art just got fired. Do you have anything for him? And the guy said, yeah. And so I went over there and I was consulting for them for a while. And then I picked up other consulting gigs along the way. And that was a very good education for me for a lot of reasons. First of all, I got to work at a fairly high level at, at these channels, helping management figure out either new businesses or just how to manage their existing business better. Secondly, I, th I, I got to see a lot of operations, how other channels operated. So by the time I got a job, and I got, I got a bunch of job offers towards the end, and I chose one. Uh, I, was, I chose Court TV because it looked like the biggest challenge. It was a mess. It was failing. And I thought, okay, <laughs> nowhere to go but up or out um, if it didn't work. And so that's why I chose that one. But I will say... Right after I got fired, I, I really had to work to pick myself up off the pavement, I got to say. Um, and I spent a, about a month really trying to talk to people to get my head around it. And it wasn't until somebody said um, he was I, I was meeting with a, the head of a record company who had been in the television business. I didn't know him very well, but he said, you know, Art, if, if uh, in the entertainment business, if you don't get fired once in a while, it means you weren't doing anything. You know? And I thought about that. And I thought, yeah, all right, I get that. If you want to keep your job, keep your head down. But if you want to get something done, make a splash, make a difference in your company or in the world, 
then that's not going to work so well. And you put yourself at risk. That's what you call reframing. (laughs) Taking that negative situation and looking at it from a completely different perspective where in in a way that is so powerful. The way you know when you're when you're standing out, when you're doing something different, you're gonna you're gonna get fired once in a while. When you're not, when you stay in your comfort zone, that's when you kind of just keep on on that fine line. So it's a good thing in a sense, but it still hurts and it still sucks. And especially, Listen, I think it I I think it hurts for people to be fired from jobs they hated and wanted to leave. It still hurts when someone says, "You know what? We don't want you here anymore." Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how bad things have gotten between us. I mean, that's what, that's how it comes down. It's like, you know, it's like your girlfriend breaking up with you. It's suddenly, it's like, well, you're kidding me, right? Even though you wanted to break up with her, it's like, no, no, you can't. No, this is not good because now I feel terrible about myself. And uh, that's mm-hmm. that's what getting fired is. It, it makes you feel terrible about yourself. You had, um, you, you, you married and had kids at that time, didn't you? Yeah, I was, oh. Yes. How was um, you dealing with, obviously, running, coming coming to Central, then getting fired and going through all of that? How did that affect home? And actually, even in that whole process, when you were still within coming to Central, let me start with that question first. How was that? Because the life of, of founders and entrepreneurs are never easy. And what you were doing was like an entrepreneur, it was very innovative. So I'm just curious to understand, first question would be, how was that at home for you? Well, I, certainly I was working very hard. Um, luckily, I had a wife who was and is terrific and took care of things on the home front while I was uh, w- doing comedy. Actually, uh, we didn't have kids till a few years into it, so that was sort of halfway through we started having kids. So she was working. So it, how did it work? I mean, you know, we were two working people, and uh, she continued to work after having children. And we got together at night <laughs> and on weekends most of the time. It was it was fine, you know. It was she knew how important this was to me, and and uh, it was it was never an issue. When I got fired, that was a different story because you know that was scary not only to me but to my wife because you know we had a we had a couple we had well yeah a couple of kids at that point. And uh, and a house and a mortgage, and you know the, the, the again I, I will use the analogy of breaking up with your girlfriend. The first thing you think is, oh my gosh, nobody will ever go out with me again, right? And of course that's not true. And the same thing happened to me. I thought, oh my gosh, maybe I'll never work again. Maybe nobody will ever hire me again. I mean, all these things go through your mind, and that would have resulted in a radical lifestyle change <laughs> for my family and me. Uh, and I wanted to avoid that. And it was, you know, it was, there was pressure, I have to say. So all I can say is, you know, I, I did my best to uh, recover. And my wife was very supportive. And I ended up getting job offers and life went on. Nice. The, the statement you've made in your, in your bio, which is the most interesting project and the least successful project was commercializing 3D televisions. I was like, that was a <laughs> that was a contrast. <laughs> like, most interesting, least successful. Like, what was it about three televisions that you found um, interesting? Well, three D tel- as a guy who worked in television, had to make television. I found three D television fascinating, 
And the same way all filmmakers, so many filmmakers find 3D filmmaking fascinating because it's another tool you can work with. I mean, imagine if Alfred Hitchcock could make a 3D movie. And did he make a 3D movie? I, I can't recall. Where. He might have made one. But anyway, whether he did or not, 3D is an amazing tool because you can, you know, you can bring different emotions to the audience with 3D that you couldn't otherwise, you know, throwing things at them for one thing. And I realize that sounds like a cheap gag, but, you know, I mean, so much about movies is about conveying whatever you're trying to convey without dialogue, you know, without people talking about it. It's visual. It's a visual art form, and 3D is the way we see things. The problem was, I think, with 3D television was that it was it, it, it required glasses and people didn't want to wear glasses to watch television. That was too much trouble. And the other issue was, could we find enough programming in 3D to support the desire for people to buy a 3D television? And remember, this was when I was working with Panasonic. They were a hardware company. They sold televisions. Mm -hmm. They wanted to get 3D going first because if they did, then they'd sell a lot of 3D televisions before Sony got into it to compete with them. And that's the television hardware, you know, that's the television business for, in a nutshell. Can we be enough ahead technologically to sell a lot of televisions before the other guys catch up? So we, you know, we were hired by Panasonic. I was hired by Panasonic. I was working with two other guys in a consulting firm, and we were hired to try and find programming, put together a 3D television channel in conjunction with one of, uh, one of the satellite delivery guys, DirecTV, and it was a fascinating process. And there's lots, of, there's lots of 3D material out there. There's lots of 3D video out there, and more being made, but it just didn't catch on. I found out subsequently, or maybe during that period, that the Army had done some tests when they were doing simulations for tanks and airline, airplane simulators. And they found that, especially in tanks, in order to make it more realistic, it was better to make the sound more realistic than make the video more realistic. And I found that fascinating. Sound is so, so important to a realistic uh, uh, experience. So 3D kind of came in second, I think, I guess, you know. <laughs> you know, make sure you improve your sound system is, I, I guess, my point. Um, and even now, you know, with high def, you see the high def going higher and higher. You got 4K and 5K and 6K, whatever, whatever they'll come up with. I mean, you know, how real can, do you have to make it look? In the old days, we thought standard definition television was plenty. <laughs> And now you look at standard definition, it looks like it's out of focus, <laughs> right, compared to HD. But the new HD television channels, it's like you're in the room with those guys, which yeah. is a little – there's actually a toggle on my television to put it back to previous HD because the new HD is so jarring, I think. And that's uh, – it's very interesting. It's, it's a part of the business I never thought I'd be close to. But there I was doing it, and like everything else in my career, I got fascinated, and I wanted to do a good job. Nice. Would you say that, um, based on your 
your vast experience of working with other leaders, you leading several different teams. I was curious, like, what is your definition of, of leadership? Leadership is really about bringing out the best in the people working for you. You know, doing whatever it takes to make them, put them at their peak performance level. And also developing a sense of teamwork. That it's not just about the individual, it's about what can come out of the collaboration uh, among the team. And I saw that so many times as I was managing people, when I first started managing people, and ultimately when I was you know, managing essentially hundreds of people, um, it's very important to point out what the common goals are, what the common interests are, and recognize people for their brilliance or fine work when they're doing it and coach people who are not achieving what you want them to to achieve get them <laughs> i used to call it extra coaching help i mean because some people i found were so talented but were just not fitting into an organization very well and rather than just throwing them out I'd say, okay, you know, how can we help these people along? And sometimes I was doing the coaching. Sometimes it was someone working for me doing the coaching. But it was really taking a concerted interest in the person and saying, okay, here's what we like about you, but it's not working. You're not, you're not doing everything you can for this organization. How are we going to address that? How are you, you know, how can we help you get better at this? And, you know, a lot of times that worked. And that, that's when I felt particularly good, you know, when I could convey to someone how they could become a more useful part of the organization and also become a better, you know, executive themselves or manager or employee. That's a very rare approach when I think about the styles of leadership and management in the 90s and 2000s how did you kind of get into that that mentality and and have that way of approaching people and organizations and cultures because that is very very different to a lot of stuff i've read and stuff i've looked into even though i 100 agree with it but it's very very different to those to, um, to back in those days yeah I, you know what it's interesting to hear you say did you say you 100 agree or 100 agree? agree agree <laughs> I think everybody I think everybody would like to be managed in the way and led in the way I just described. I think that the reason that doesn't happen is because it takes time, you know, it takes more effort. Early on I, I wanted to become a good manager. I remember the first time I had to manage someone, and this is when I had just gotten out of school and I worked as an economist in Washington DC. I knew nothing about economics or anything else. You know? I mean, I graduated with a degree in economics and I was hired and I was smart and I was working on stuff. Um, and they said, okay, you know what? Uh, we're just hiring this person. She's a uh, Phi Beta Kappa from, in economics from uh, University of Colorado. And do you think you can handle being her manager? <laughs> and that's exactly how they said it. And I said, ah, I guess so. And uh, I had no idea how to tell someone else Here's what I want you to do. And then actually turn around and walk away and let them do it without, you know, standing there and looking over their shoulder. That's, ma that's intro management right there, right? That's the first thing you have to do as a manager. You have to let go of the task. Yeah. Instead of saying, just give me that, will you? You're not doing it right, you know, and 
doing it right. Because you really, I found early on, you really extend yourself by having people working for you. If you can explain what you need and what's needed and what you want and have people go off and do it by themselves and come back and have it either as good as you hoped or better in so many cases, big win, big win as a manager. And so just to finish that story, so the woman came to work for me. Her name was Linda. We had, uh, I guess she worked for me for two or three years. We became friends ultimately because she married my roommate who was my best friend from college. We're still friends. She told me subsequently, years later, she said, you know, you started out as the worst manager I've ever had, and you ended up as the best manager that I've ever had. And the reason is, I realized at the beginning, I was just blowing it, you know? It was just a disaster for her, it was a disaster for me, and this wasn't going to work. And I started studying what good management was all about. I read about it, I asked other people, I thought about, okay... Who are the bosses that, you know, that I like around here? Who can I emulate? And then as time went by, I mean, I went back to business school. Of course, you study management there, but it wasn't so much about this kind of stuff, uh, interestingly. Yeah. But anyway, and I got out of school, and I continued to think about what makes good management, what makes good leadership, and watching people. Now, in the television industry, I'll throw this in before I stop talking, is the television industry and the entertainment industry is really ego-oriented. I mean, you know, I talked about Michael Fuchs as the head of HBO. Huge ego. And if Michael said, jump, you said, how high? I don't care what level in the organization you were. He was the boss. What he said goes. He did not delegate stuff that way. He felt like he was in charge of everything. Uh, And to a certain extent, he was. But that's a different style of leadership than somebody, and this was my philosophy, if you're doing a good job as a manager, then you, sp- you get to spend a lot of time putting your feet up on the desk and saying, okay, what's next? You know, because you got, things are cooking. Things are moving along, giving you the time to pick your gaze up from, you know, right at your feet and look at the horizon and above the horizon and see where you're going. That is so, so true. I mean, that's that's the whole point, isn't it? You're supposed to be a visionary when you're at that level. But right. you can't be a visionary if you're so knee-deep in the detail because you're busy micromanaging the people that you've put into position to do a certain job and certain task. So you need to step away right. and let and trust them to do what they need to do and come to you for help. But you focus on other, on other things to help that program, project, organization kind of keep on going forward. And when, when it comes to um, comedy, the state of comedy currently speaking, would you say it's it's gone soft? And <laughs> a lot of comedians are, I guess, scared to say how they really feel, what's really in their, in their minds because they don't want to get counseled. Or would you say it's, when you compare from when it was to where it is now and your experience, not a lot's changed? I'll go with B. I don't think a lot's changed. Um, I know that the current culture is critical of comedians or anybody else who's kind of crossing the line, wherever the line happens to be that day. And the line certainly has moved. Uh, I've spoken to a lot of comedians who are very concerned about it, you know. They don't want to be in a position where something they say is not only offensive, because, hey, you know, uh, offending people is part of life. You do it accidentally sometimes. 
But when you're a comedian, you want to push the boundaries. Think of the great comedians who push the boundaries. Lenny Bruce, um, George Carlin, certainly. Uh, Bill Maher on Politically Incorrect. I don't know if that's a show you're familiar with. Yeah. Um, it's on HBO now. It's called something else. Late Tonight with Bill Maher, whatever it's called. It's essentially the same show we put on Comedy Central with Bill Maher in 1992. It was instructive what Bill said to us when he pitched the show. He said, I want to do a talk show where people actually talk. And I want it to be funny, but I, I also want to go to the line, go up to the line, and cross the line. And I'm going to get in trouble a lot. We're going to get in trouble. Because that, that will be our job. We are going to be politically incorrect. And I think that is something that is a gift from comedy. You know, I talked about Richard Pryor comedically coding uh, a look at, at a social situation, social injustice in this country. Certainly, comedians have spoken up about injustices, social injustices, the, the plight of African Americans or women. I mean, look at look at women comedians and what they've done for the for women in in the last thirty years. I mean, when I first started in comedy, sure there were women comedians, stand up comedians, but there are so many more now. So many women in the writers' room. So much progress has been made. Where would we have been if we hadn't had some of these women comedians standing up and giving us through their lens what it's like to be a woman in America? I'm thinking of America, but I'm sure elsewhere as well. You know, and maybe that was offensive to some people, you know, talking about being a woman in terms that hadn't been talked about previously. And it was funny, which let them get away with it in a way that, you know, a, an essay or an editorial in the London Times wouldn't do it. You know, it just wouldn't work. So, man, let's keep let's keep comedy in that role. Let's keep comedy, keep, you know, keeping us laughing, but also showing showing us the world through a different lens than we would otherwise look through. Yeah, I think comedy as a whole always, in a sense, held us to account, but done it in a very comedic way. And yes. that's why I've always loved it. Even, um, I think, The Daily Show with um, right now, which is Comedy Central as well, the way that it's done, it's talking about what's going on right now in the political world, generally speaking, but it's done in a very tongue-in-cheek, comical way, but it's so relatable. And those are the kind of things that you need, where you can hear that news and hear what's happening in the world, but hear it through a different perspective in the way it's delivered. Right. And so many young people gravitated to The Daily Show, which was essentially a news show. It's a daily news show. And so many people said at the time, and now I presume, we get our news from The Daily Show. That's where we get it. And before that, they weren't even watching news or maybe even paying attention to it in the same way. So good for Comedy Central, good for The Daily Show, and for the people who made it work. What was it like working in um, court TV? I'm just, obviously, I watch it now and I see what it is, but I'm just curious, what was it behind the scenes? Well, court TV... It was a, a great challenge because it was a failed channel. They had very few subscribers. They had just finished covering the OJ trial, which was a big pop for them. But everybody says, oh, yeah, Court TV, the OJ trial, man, that was great. But most people didn't watch the OJ trial on Court TV. They watched it on the news or on other channels. When I got to Court TV, it 
had no revenues. It had no primetime programming schedule. They were just showing courtroom trials during the day and very little else, and uh, very little else at night. Now, it was a journalistic enterprise. There were journalists there. That was my first real interaction with that whole world. These journalists were serious. I mean, they, they you know, they come from some of the, the great newspapers and magazines in America uh, and, and got to television and were covering television, covering for television, the, the justice system, essentially, and they were very serious about it. So when I walked in, I had to say, okay, the channel's failing because it doesn't have a primetime schedule. It's too much focused on courtroom trials, and we have to broaden, and we're going to broaden by bringing in crime. We're going to make it about crime and justice, not just justice, okay? Do documentaries about detectives and how forensic detecting works. And we're going to, you know, really kind of focus on the science of it. So it would be more palatable, first of all, to the advertisers. Because nobody just wants to see, you know, okay, there was a murder, big deal. They want to see, okay, how was the murder solved? What was the cleverness of the detectives? What was the big break in the case? I mean, we always talked about, look, you know, the poor murder person, whatever the crime was, that shows up for a minute at the beginning. And then it's all about the investigation. So we made the channel about investigation, and we became very successful. And when I left eight years later, I, I have eight year stints in my career. I, I was there at eight, eight years. I was at comedy eight years. So when I left eight years later, it was very successful. We were in 85 million homes. We were one of the top 10 or 15 channels every month, and we got bought out. And they changed the format, so there was no more court TV. They didn't like it, the new guys. <laughs> Even though it was successful, they didn't like it. That's that thing about change once again. And speaking of eight-year stints, you are, obviously, you've released your book. You are into writing heavily. Are you potentially going to go and extend that further and go from books to films to TV? Or is just you're currently in the zone and you enjoying it? Well, uh, you know, listen, I, I wrote the book... Almost by accident, I started writing stories about my childhood, and then I wrote some stories about Comedy Central, and then I realized, wow, Comedy Central, greatest greatest adventure of my career, and started writing about it, and there was a book. Whether I'm going to do more books, I don't know. I've been writing short stories, fiction, and uh, that's been great fun. I enjoy writing, I found. So I'm going to keep doing that. I don't know if anything's going to come of it, and I don't care. You know, I write for myself primarily, and for a small audience, includes my wife, <laughs> who likes most of what I like, uh, what I write, not all. <laughs> and, you know, I don't have it. Oh, let me say, you know, I've been approached a, a little bit about, you know, maybe we should, have you ever thought about turning your book, Constant Comedy, uh, into a movie? And I said, yeah, sounds interesting, you know, and so there's some discussions. I'm doing an audio book. Of the of constant comedy. Oh, nice! That's good. And that'll be out in a few months. Yeah, I'm reading it. I am reading it myself, which is you know, hey, a little crazy, but it's my you know, it's me talking in the first person, so I figured why not. Um, and uh, and I'm doing a podcast. I started a podcast with a friend of mine. The book is called Constant Comedy: How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. The podcast is called the Constant Comedy Podcast, and what we're doing, we're starting with twelve episodes. 
and we're doing um, interviews with people who were there at comedy at the beginning. And it's not only about the stories about, I mean, it was a very, it was an explosively creative time for so many people. We were just doing all kinds of crazy stuff that ended up being the comedy network, Comedy Central. Um, but it's also about their careers. You know, we talked to someone who was the head of Paramount Pictures a few years ago. She was the president of Paramount Pictures. Her first job in the industry was with Comedy Channel. She had never had a job in, in television. She was young. She walked in. Her first job, she told great stories about it. And that was her, you know, that was her start. So many people who started a Comedy Channel or Comedy Central in the old days went on to brilliant careers. And we're talking to them about it. How much fun is that? <laughs> it is fun. Brilliant. Yeah. I, I'm trying to tap into that because I love hearing stories of how things came together, especially in times when it was just, I'm going to call it innovative. I know it was crazy, but, but innovative it was times crazy. where it was crazy. But it was innovative. We, yeah. were, we were doing comedy that nobody else would had seen before, you know, or thought about before. Certainly not on television, mm. you know. Um, yeah, it's something to be proud of those early days. I'm looking forward to hearing the book because hearing you talk and share your stories with the way that you the way that you do the way you deliver it, I know it's going to be brilliant. So I love listening to all your oh, books thank as well. You. So that's going to go. I guess my last question to you would be: What does success mean to you? Well, that's an interesting question. I guess I'm I'm old enough to think about success in life as opposed to success in just business. I think success in life is about finding finding out finding out what you love to do and and doing it in a way that benefits other people really that's success so much of of uh the way people define success is about money how much money do you make how much money did you make um that's that's you know we know that money is not is not the ultimate determinant of how happy you are so why should it be the ultimate determinant of success uh, and I don't think it is it's important to have money to live don't get me wrong uh, and to uh, and to do things you'd like to do but I think you know what I've heard from a lot of people who've read the book recently who I hadn't heard from in years 30 years you know and every once in a while somebody says Hey, you know, Arn, I was just a kid then, but you treated me so kindly. And then, you know, and my career took off from then. And some of these people, I don't, honestly, I don't remember them because, you know, lots of people. But when they say that, you treated me kindly. You were good to me. You were a great boss. You were, you know, inspirational to me at some point in my career. I love hearing that. I mean, to me, that's success. Well, that is, that's legacy. When you leave an impact and imprint on someone else's life where you don't even remember you doing it, but it was just you doing you and operate authentically and it's been a positive impact. That for me is legacy and that's that's brilliant to hear. And thank you very much for coming on. It's been I've had so much fun just listening to you, your stories. The book, Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor is obviously out. It'll be in the show notes. The audiobook is coming out in a couple of months. If you want to wait, 
Listening to Art Talk is brilliant, as you just heard right now, as you're watching, if you're watching on YouTube. So if you're waiting for the audiobook, it's coming. And I'm sure it's going to be filled with a lot of little, little bit quips in there as well. <laughs> so it brings emotion out in that book as describes the story. So you can wait for that. But thank you very much for just having this conversation with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's Everyday Leadership. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Leadership. You can check out the show notes on www.mindsetshift.co.uk forward slash podcast where you can find out more about my guests and how you can contact them. You can listen to old episodes or if you have a question about this episode or any of the episodes, you can just press a button and ask me that question and I'll answer it on the next episode. Don't forget to subscribe, comment, share this podcast with someone else. We'll see you next time everyday leadership.